0: Chapter 15 of Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 15. Coaching Trip and Marriage. The freedom of my native town, Dunfermline, was conferred upon me July twelfth, 1877, the first freedom and the greatest honor I ever received. I was overwhelmed. Only two signatures upon the roll came between mine and Sir Walter Scott's, who had been made a Burgess. My parents had seen him one day sketching Dunfermline Abbey, and often told me about his appearance. My speech in reply to the freedom was a subject of much concern. I spoke to my uncle Bailey Morrison, telling him I just felt like saying so-and-so, as this really was in my heart. He was an orator himself, and he spoke words of wisdom to me then. Just say that, Andra. Nothing like saying just what you really feel. It was a lesson in public speaking which I took to heart. There was one rule I might suggest for youthful orators when you stand up before an audience reflect that there are before you only men and women you should speak to them as you speak to other men and women in daily intercourse if you are not trying to be something different from yourself there is no more occasion for embarrassment than if you were talking in your office to a party of your own people none whatever it is trying to be other than oneself that unmans one be your own natural self and go ahead I once asked Colonel Ingersoll, the most effective public speaker I ever heard, to what he attributed his power. Avoid elocutionists like snakes, he said, and be yourself. I spoke again at Dunfermline, July 27, 1881, when my mother laid the foundation stone there of the first free library building I ever gave. My father was one of five weavers who founded the earliest library in the town by opening their own books to their neighbors. Dunfermline named the building I gave Carnegie Library. The architect asked for my coat of arms. I informed him I had none, but suggested that above the door there might be carved a rising sun shedding its rays with the motto, Let there be light. This he adopted. We had come up to Dunfermline with a coaching party. When walking through England in the year 1867 with George Lauder and Harry Phipps, I had formed the idea of coaching from Brighton to Inverness with a party of my dearest friends. The time had come for the long promised trip, and in the spring of 1881 we sailed from New York, a party of eleven, to enjoy one of the happiest excursions of my life. It was one of the holidays from business that kept me young and happy, worth all the medicine in the world. All the notes I made of the coaching trip were a few lines a day in two-penny passbooks bought before we started. As with round the world, I thought that I might some day write a magazine article or give some account of my excursion for those who accompanied me, but one wintry day I decided that it was scarcely worth while to go down to the New York office, three miles distant, and the question was how I should occupy the spare time. I thought of the coaching trip, and decided to write a few lines, just to see how I should get on. The narrative flowed freely, and, before the day was over, I had written between three and four thousand words. I took up the pleasing task every stormy day when it was unnecessary for me to visit the office, and in exactly twenty settings I had finished a book. I handed the notes to Scribner's people, and asked them to print a few hundred copies for private circulation. The volume pleased my friends, as round the world had done. Mr. Champlin one day told me that Mr. Scribner had read the book and would like very much to publish it for general circulation upon his own account, subject to a royalty. The vain author is easily persuaded that what he has done is meritorious, and I consented. Every year this still nets me a small sum in royalties, and thirty years have gone by 1912. The letters I received upon the publication of it were so numerous and some so gushing that my people saved them, and they are now bound together in scrapbook form to which additions are made from time to time. The number of invalids who have been pleased to write me stating that the book had brightened their lives has been gratifying. Its reception in Britain was cordial. The spectator gave it a favourable review, but any merit that the book has comes, I am sure, from the total absence of effort on my part to make an impression. I wrote for my friends, and what one does easily, one does well. I reveled in the writing of the book, as I had in the journey itself. The year 1886 ended in deep gloom for me. My life as a happy, careless young man, with every want looked after, was over. I was left alone in the world." My mother and brother passed away in November, within a few days of each other, while I lay in bed under a severe attack of typhoid fever, unable to move and, perhaps fortunately, unable to feel the full weight of the catastrophe, being myself face to face with death. I was the first stricken upon returning from a visit in the East to our cottage at Crescent Springs on top of the Alleghanies, where my mother and I spent our happy summers, i had been quite unwell for a day or two before leaving new york a physician being summoned my trouble was pronounced typhoid fever professor dennis was called from new york and he corroborated the diagnosis an attendant physician and trained nurse were provided at once soon after my mother broke down and my brother in pittsburgh also was reported ill i was despaired of i was so low and then my whole nature seemed to change i became reconciled indulged in pleasing meditations was without the slightest pain my mother's and brother's serious condition had not been revealed to me and when i was informed that both had left me forever it seemed only natural that i should follow them we had never been separated why should we be now but it was decreed otherwise i recovered slowly and the future began to occupy my thoughts there was only one ray of hope and comfort in it toward that my thoughts always turned for several years i had known miss louise whitfield her mother permitted her to ride with me in the central park we were both very fond of riding other young ladies were on my list i had fine horses and often rode in the park and around new york with one or the other of the circle in the end the others all faded into ordinary beings Miss Whitfield remained alone as the perfect one beyond any I had met. Finally, I began to find and admit to myself that she stood the supreme test I had applied to several fair ones in my time. She alone did so, of all I had ever known. I could recommend young men to apply this test before offering themselves. If they can honestly believe the following lines, as I did, then all is well. "'Full many a lady, I've eyed with best regard,' For several virtues have I liked several women, never any with so full soul, but some defect in her did quarrel with the noblest grace she owed, and put it to the foil, but you, oh you, so perfect and so peerless, are created of every creature's best. In my soul I could echo those very words. Today, after twenty years of life with her, if I could find stronger words I could truthfully use them my advances met with indifferent success she was not without other and younger admirers my wealth and future plans were against me i was rich and had everything and she felt she could be of little use or benefit to me her ideal was to be the real helpmeet of a young struggling man to whom she could and would be indispensable as her mother had been to her father the care of her own family had largely fallen upon her after her father's death when she was twenty-one she was now twenty-eight her views of life were formed at times she seemed more favourable and we corresponded once however she returned my letters saying she felt she must put aside all thought of accepting me "'Professor and Mrs. Dennis took me from Crescent to their own home in New York as soon as I could be removed, and I lay there some time under the former's personal supervision. Miss Whitfield called to see me, for I had written her the first words from Cresson I was able to write. She saw now that I needed her. I was left alone in the world. Now she could be in every sense the helpmeet. Both her heart and head were now willing, and the day was fixed.' we were married in new york april twenty second eighteen eighty seven and sailed for our honeymoon which was passed on the isle of wright her delight was intense in finding the wild flowers she had read of wandering willie heart's ease forget-me-nots the primrose wild thyme and the whole list of homely names that had been to her only names till now everything charmed her uncle lauder and one of my cousins came down from scotland and visited us and then we soon followed to the residence at Kilgraston they had selected for us in which to spend the summer. Scotland captured her. There was no doubt about that. Her girlish reading had been of Scotland, Scots novels and Scottish chiefs being her favorites. She soon became more Scotch than I. All this was fulfilling my fondest dream. We spent some days in Dunfermline and enjoyed them much. The haunts and incidents of my boyhood were visited and recited to her by all and sundry. She got nothing but flattering accounts of her husband, which gave me a good start with her. I was presented with the freedom of Edinburgh as we passed northward, Lord Rosebery making the speech. The crowd in Edinburgh was great. I addressed the working men in the largest hall and received a present from them, as did Mrs. Carnegie also, a brooch she values highly. She heard and saw the Pipers in all their glory, and begged there should be one at our home, a Piper to walk around and waken us in the morning, and also to play us into dinner. American as she is to the core, and Connecticut Puritan at that, she declared that if condemned to live upon a lonely island, and allowed to choose only one musical instrument, it would be the Pipes. The Piper was secured quickly enough. One called and presented credentials from Clooney MacPherson we engaged him and were preceded by him playing the pipes as we entered our kilgraston house we enjoyed kilgraston although mrs carnegie still longed for a wilder and more highland home matthew arnold visited us as did mr and mrs blaine senator and mrs eugene hale and many friends mrs carnegie would have my relatives up from dunfermline especially the older uncles and aunties she charmed every one they expressed their surprise to me that she ever married me but i told them i was equally surprised the match had evidently been predestined we took our piper with us when we returned to new york and also our housekeeper and some of the servants mrs Nicoll remains with us still and is now after twenty years faithful service as a member of the family george Irvin, our butler came to us a year later and is also as one of us Maggie Anderson, one of the servants, is the same. They are devoted people, of high character and true loyalty. The next year we were offered and took Cluny Castle. Our Piper was just the man to tell us all about it. He had been born and bred there, and perhaps influenced our selection of that residence where we spent several summers. On March 30th, 1897, there came to us our daughter. As I first gazed upon her, Mrs. Carnegie said, her name is margaret after your mother now one request i have to make what is it lou we must get a summer home since this little one has been given us we cannot rent one and be obliged to go in and go out at a certain date it should be our home yes i agreed i make only one condition what is that i asked it must be in the highlands of scotland bless you was my reply. That suits me. You know I have to keep out of the sun's rays, and where can we do that so surely as among the heather? I'll be a committee of one to inquire and report. Skibo Castle was the result. It is now twenty years since Mrs. Carnegie entered and changed my life. A few months after the passing of my mother, and only brother, left me alone in the world my life had been made so happy by her that i cannot imagine myself living without her guardianship i thought i knew her when she stood ferdinand's test but it was only the surface of her qualities i had seen and felt of their purity holiness wisdom i had not sounded the depth in every emergency of our active changing and in later years somewhat public life and all her relations with others including my family and her own she has proved the diplomat and peacemaker peace and goodwill attend her footsteps wherever her blessed influence extends in the rare instances demanding heroic action it is she who first realizes this and plays the part The peacemaker has never had a quarrel in all her life, not even with a schoolmate, and there does not live a soul upon the earth who has met her who has the slightest cause to complain of neglect. Not that she does not welcome the best and gently avoid the undesirable, none is more fastidious than she, but neither rank, wealth, nor social position affects her one iota. She is incapable of acting or speaking rudely. All is in perfect good taste. Still, she never lowers the standard. Her intimates are only of the best. She is always thinking how she can do good to those around her, planning for this one and that in case of need, and making such judicious arrangements of presents as surprise those cooperating with her. I cannot imagine myself going through these twenty years without her, nor can I endure the thought of living after her in the course of nature i have not that to meet but then the thought of what will be cast upon her a woman left alone with so much requiring attention and needing a man to decide gives me intense pain and i sometimes wish i had this to endure for her but then she will have our blessed daughter in her life and perhaps that will keep her patient besides margaret needs her more than she does her father why Oh, why are we compelled to leave the heaven we have found on earth, and go we know not where? For I can say with Jessica, it is very meet the Lord Bassanio live an upright life, for, having such a blessing in his lady, he finds the joys of heaven here on earth. End of chapter 15. Recording by William Tomko